we prepare for God's Word today, I want to just remind you from last week, Jude, indeed a uh, half-brother of Christ, brings us the letter this morning, and he knew his brother as Jesus of Nazareth. We began this morning in our Sunday school class exactly where I wanted to start today, and that is in uh, John 17. There's a brief explanation of the... uh, closing part of Jesus' ministry that him and his brothers are together and they sort of are uh, teasing him a little bit about going into the Feast of Tabernacles and making himself known and we're reminded there in John 7 that the brothers did not believe so somewhere between John 7 and the cross you can find words from Christ where that gives life to all of his brothers because we find all of them after the ascension in the room with the disciples and the women and Mary um, and it says his brothers waiting on Christ. They do believe and Jude is here today giving us uh, these words. You know, um, Jesus knew Jude's father, Joseph, but Jude for a time did not know Jesus' father. And Jesus, because of his recognition of who Christ was, he was able to know his Father. He, he parentheses the words, uh, the whole book, with reminding the people that they are called of God, they're beloved in God, they're kept by God for the revelation of Christ in the end. And at the end he talks about an eternal perspective that God is before all time and now and forevermore. These are the attitudes in mind of Jude as he approaches us today. At the feast that Christ did not, Christ snuck into the feast. His brothers were already there. Christ comes in and Christ speaks to uh, the people. He says, my doctrine is not mine. It's a three point. This, everybody's told me how hard this passage is to preach this morning. It's very easy. It's three points. It's, preachers, it's a preacher's uh, haven. It's just three. And Christ says to the people there that uh, my doctrine is not mine. He makes it all about doctrine. And he talks about the authority of God, authority. And he talks about practice or keeping the word. And that's what you'll find the heartbeat in Jude over and over again. Is truth, authority, and practice. And that's what we're going to see this morning. Please join me and stand in reverence to God's word as we read verses 5 through 16. Now I want to remind you, although you you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet, in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, 
he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain, and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feast, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud mouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Saints at Redeemer, this is the Word of God, and what do we know about the Word of God? And may be seated. So a couple of other points just as a short introduction, and that is first that the letter itself from Jude is an example to us of, of how to respond to something going wrong. Jude wanted to write them a happy note. He was eager to write to them about their common salvation, but he was compelled, he found it necessary to appeal to them to continue Ten for the faith. He could not leave it alone. He could not bypass writing this letter. He had to. And then it is the letter as a whole is an example of us, to us on how we should respond to things going wrong. So we want to keep that in mind as we move through the letter a little further. It's an, it's an internal problem, however. We see in society today this cry for tolerance of sin. Uh, James Kennedy wrote this uh, in a quote. He says, tolerance is the last virtue of a depraved society. When you have an immoral society that has blatantly and proudly violated all of the commandments of God, there is one last virtue they insist upon, tolerance for their immorality. And though true, this, this book, this letter that we have here before us is not teaching us to go fight the social battle. If it was a letter to us to teach us to go fight the social battle, it would be more like a letter addressed to the emperor of Rome to tell him to stop 
killing Christians because that was the social issue of what was going on that day. What Jude has in mind is for us to stay internal in our focus. It's how we are dealing with one another within the church. That's the problem that he's dealing with that was going on then, a problem he could not turn his eye away from. Billy Graham in 1950, tolerance was an issue then. Billy Graham wrote, the word tolerant means liberal, broad-minded, willingness to put up with beliefs opposed to one's convictions and the allowance of something not wholly approved. Hence, over-tolerance and moral issues make, made us soft, flabby, and devoid of conviction. We have become tolerant about divorce, sin, wickedness, crime, and godlessness. We have been sapped of conviction, drained of our beliefs, and bereft of our faith. We are somewhat more willing to go out and express our intolerance in the world than when we need to express intolerance on issue within the church. And I want to call your attention that it is an internal letter for God's people with one another. And lastly, by way of introduction, we quickly want to explain these certain people that he's uh, talking about, the ungodly people, as false teachers. Now, you may not be as simple-minded as I am, but when I hear that word false teachers, I keep thinking, oh, it's, a, it's an elder, it's somebody they hired to come in, and he's broadcasting a wrong um, and a, a doctrinal issue that's not right. But remember, these people have crept in. They snuck in. I was listening to a couple of guys on the radio this week, and they were talking about the, the great generation and how their words, not mine, they had the opportunity to fight the last war where we could understand who the two sides were. You knew the good guys and you knew the bad guys and the great generation got to fight that war. Well, this, these people that he's talking about here are more like the, they're underneath. It's not identified. They're not wearing the uniform that says enemy. In fact, they're, re, they're almost in disguise, as you'll see in a few verses later. So keep those in mind as we move forward. Now, if Jude is the most overlooked book in the New Testament, verses 5 through 7 might be perhaps the most overlooked verses in Jude. So, and the reason is because in verse 8, you see the first three words, yet in like manner these people. So we're quickly to draw the line to the ungodly and say, hey, the, verse, the previous verses are about the ungodly and to the ungodly, and the following verses are about the ungodly and to the ungodly. Yet, look at verse 5 a little closer, and you will see that he begins, I want to remind you and me of something. If you want the Gentile version, you can turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, where Paul is reminding Timothy of all that his mother and his grandmother, he does this several times in his letters to Timothy, I want to remind you of the scriptures you already know, is the way Paul says it. Jude is reminding them in the same way. You once fully knew, he says. In Timothy, verse 16, is your Gentile version 
of what he's saying here. Timothy says that Scripture is breathed by God. In other words, Scripture has authority. And it's profitable for teaching, for doctrine, or truths, and for training in righteousness. Remember our threefold drum. It is truth, it is authority, and it is practice. That is what you get directly, the same words in 2 Timothy 3.16. Oh, but there's a couple of other little things in 2 Timothy 3.16, and he adds between the teaching and the training in righteousness, reproof and correction. So if you can picture the roadway, and God gives us truth, His authoritative truth and doctrine for teaching, and we're going to stay in that truth and doctrine, and we're going to head down this road, and it's going to give us a good instruction on how to stay on this road of righteousness. Yet, if you drive like some of my children, perhaps, you might start drifting off of this road a little bit. And so, the barriers to this road sometimes takes maybe new road constructions is the, is the reproof. It's the correction. And it's things we must, as a church, we cannot avoid. We will indeed deal with doctrine and truth. We will indeed have to understand and submit to authority. And we will indeed be trained in righteousness. But we cannot ignore that it will also take times of reproof and correction. And I'll even add the word discipline at times. He says in verse 5 of Jude that Jesus saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Now, the um, commentators vary a little bit, but I think if you turn to Numbers chapter 13 and 14, this is the event of which he is thinking. See, there's, there's this place that God has prepared for a people. It's called the promised land. And he wants them to go into this land to take dominion in it. This is the place for you to go. And they come right to the edge of this place and they send in some spies. And the spies come back and 10 out of 12 of them discourage the people from going in and following the directions of God. And the people... It says in, ver in chapter 14, verses 1 and 2, that the people cried and wept that night. No one other than Caleb and Joshua called on the people to trust God, to believe God, to fulfill what God's purpose was in there, and to obey Him and to go into this land. And all the people could do was cry and weep. Notice what they were most worried about is in chapter 13 and verse 32. It says they had gotten this bad report about the land which they had spied out. And the land they began to fear. And they say a land, the land will devour us and its inhabitants. How silly to think that the land 
would, would devour them. It's the place where God wanted them to go. That's the instructions to us. To always be believing in the truth of God. And to be instructing one another in this truth. To know what God has for us. And the enjoyment and to look forward to the domain in which He wishes us to dwell on this road of righteousness. Second example, under authority, the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Remember in chapter 1, Jude talked about you being kept for the day of Christ. These angels are kept for gloomy darkness in the judgment of that day. That's what they're kept for. He is reminding us that we are in a spiritual warfare. There is an authority higher than us. There is this authority these angels drifted away from. They did not know who they were. It's a domain. Remember, I want you to go into this domain we would not go. The angels are into this domain and they depart from it. And he says they will experience gloomy darkness because of it. Remember, Redeemer, we are in a spiritual battle. In verse 7, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Do you ever wonder how you get fire and darkness to combine? Today I'd like to describe it as, I guess, a black fire, something we've never seen, yet is out there and will occur. Sodom and Gomorrah was a place of refuge for Lot, remember? Oh, this land looks too wild. Let me go to the city. It's a warning to us that we cannot feel too safe. These angels, Abraham said, what if there's 50? What if there's 40? What if there's 30? What if there's 20? Even if there's 10, God would have spared Sodom and Gomorrah. Yet, not only in Sodom, not only in Gomorrah, but also in the surrounding cities, he could not find 10. And they were destroyed. We cannot grow comfortable in our positions. We must stay on alert because quickly the immorality will take over and surround us and perhaps even determine that we must be punished to the point of an eternal fire. Now we get to come to verse 8, which says, in like manner. He's warned us to stay true to this truth, authority, practice, the drumbeat of three. It's a waltz, right? One, two, three. One, two, three. One, two. The only thing problem with that was my acronym to remember it is TAP. Truth, authority, practice. So it's a tap dance is the way we remember it. But these people won't go. That's in like manner. They won't 
follow. They won't trust. They won't believe. You see this in verse 10. But these people, they blaspheme all that they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively, naturally. They slander. They use irrational arguments. It is natural for them. It is what we will see. Remember, these people may not be this grand false teacher. Remember, uh, Dr. Duncan said just a couple of weeks ago when he was teaching us from Colossians that right before he had got to his first pastorate there in South Carolina, there was a lady in a Sunday school class which caused all kind of turmoil and commotion within that church. They creep. They're underground. They're secret. And the authority from above in verse 9 talks about that the angels, they reject authority. Excuse me, not the angels. They reject authority and blasphemy the glorious one. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but he said, The Lord rebuke you. This perhaps is an account. It's, it's from Deuteronomy 34 where we know that Moses is buried on the mountain. Deuteronomy 34 says God buried him on the mountain. <coughs> Jewish tradition was is that there were angels along with this burial party and it was actually the angels who did the work of God that buried Moses. Jewish tradition also has that this time Satan shows up and he begins to accuse Uh, Moses saying he should be condemned because he was a murderer. We learn from this account, Michael did not see his position to actually be um, accusing Moses and or the angel, uh, Satan, excuse me, of any wrongdoing, but he simply called upon the Lord. The Lord rebuked him. The example is that Michael, the good angels, understand their authority. It's a spiritual warfare of which they can see. And these people are called to remember that as well. Humility. Know your place and submit to it. And perhaps these people that, um, these, that have been challenging the, the church... They may have been calling. I was just seeing this morning on, um, on the news where these churches, sometimes the pastors are calling against these satanic angels and they demand spirits to do this and God's spirits to do that. I don't think that that's the right place to put ourselves, to be charging angels and spirituals and certainly not the Holy Spirit to do anything. Jesus says, the Spirit blows like the wind where it wants to. And lastly, these people defile the flesh. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah, these people practice defilement. And that is what you should be able to see from them. These are signs for us so that we will not ignore problems within the church. They are the things to look for. Look for truth. For how these people treat their authorities and where they understand the authorities to be, and what is their practice. In verse 11, 
Jude says the word woe. Interpreted, it means big problems for you. They walked in the way of Cain. God says to Cain, turn from your anger. Turn from your sin. Sin lays at the door waiting for you, but do not let it rule you. Turn from your hate. Why has your countenance fallen? I don't think it just jumps at the fact that they're murderers. That's where all these things led to, was the murder. And then he went into lying to God and other things. But they've walked in the way of Cain. Their practice is all of these things, and they cannot rule sin. Therefore, big problems to them. They abandoned themselves as Balaam had abandoned the nation. Second uh, Peter says the way of Balaam. Revelation says the doctrine of Balaam. Here in Jude it says Balaam's error. Balaam used his position to tempt the people to sin with immorality with the Midianites. And in Numbers 31, the writer wanted you to know for sure that just like many of the Midianites, Balaam himself was killed by the sword. Mostly Balaam was out for profit and all about Balaam rather than the truth, rather than doctrine. His goal was profit and how to progress himself rather than obeying God. And finally, perished in Korah's rebellion. Now interestingly, you've been to Numbers 13 and 14, just turn over a page in Numbers 16. This is where you have this account of Korah's rebellion. And what has occurred here is that <coughs> Korah and 250 other men are challenging the authority of Moses. Quite interestingly, if you look in verse 28, Moses says this, By this you will know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, for I have not done them of my own will. So Moses now is going to say, if this occurs, you'll know. If these men die naturally like all men, or if they are visited by a common fate of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. So if they just die regularly, then the Lord's not sent Moses and Korah and them guys are right and Moses is wrong. But if the Lord creates a new thing. Now, I don't, I'm, I'm compiling a list. You know, in six days God created everything on the seventh day he rested. We learn though that God created one new thing and that is manna. God created something new. Moses tells us that, something new. I'm adding to my list a new thing right here. Because he says God's going to create a new thing. And the second new thing after the creation of six days is this. The earth opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them. And they go down alive into the pit. Isn't it interesting that just two books earlier, the people were thinking that the land was going to devour them. And God must have thought that was a good idea. Two chapters later, they are devoured. 
It says in verse 31, It came to pass as he finished speaking these words that the ground split apart under them and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and with all the men with Korah and with all their goods. Those that weren't swallowed up actually were actually then uh, hit by fire and destroyed. See, authority cannot be challenged. Authority could, your rebellion against authority will lead to you being devoured, swallowed, and burned. In verse 12, these show up again, these ungodly, these people who are dragging this body down. He says they are hidden reefs. Remember, they're under the table. They're not obvious. A ship in the water can't see these rocks just below the surface. Yet, if you could put a fluorescent sign on them, danger, danger, danger. That's what Judah's saying here. But they attend your love feast. They feast with you without fear. They're shepherds feeding themselves. Isn't it sad? The purpose of the feast, you know, they would break bread together, then they would have the Lord's Supper, they'd have the Lord's Supper and break bread together. It's about Christ pouring Himself out, suffering and service to others. Yet, what's going on here is that they are these false teachers, these under-the-table folks, are thinking totally about themselves and feeding themselves. It's like totally opposite of what should be going on, an inward focus. Yet he tells us to keep our eyes on it. Because of the shepherds feeding themselves, most commentaries run over to Ezekiel 34. But what came to my mind, and by the way, this is a shout out to anyone teaching kindergarten, Sunday school, because when I was reading through the Bible one day as an adult, and I came around Zechariah 11, about the two sticks, and I had never, I remember my kindergarten Sunday school teacher teaching me about the stick of bond or beauty or favor and, the, and, the, and the, the, the stick of beauty and the stick of bond, right? Two sticks. And the, the shepherd comes and the shepherd breaks the stick called beauty. Uh, this would be the stick of doctrine. This would be the stick of truth. This would be the stick of grace and favor. And after that stick is broken, there's nothing that can be left except to also break the stick of bond, the stick of unity. The parable at the time was how Judah and Israel would be broken apart. But for us, it's connecting this truth and authority with practice. It cannot be separated. And now the big sign. This is the big sign. You know, I've told there's no sign at Disney World. You just know you're there, right? I've told there's no sign at North Park, too. You just know you're there. But here are some signs. Remember, it's our timidness in dealing with one another. When we see false, we don't want to offend. Next week, you're going to learn about how. This week, it's what. The big sign is fruit. He said these people are waterless clouds. 
You would expect rain, especially in Dallas. If a cloud comes, it rains. But these clouds have no water. It will not rain. They're swept along not by the Holy Spirit, but just by wind. In fact, the Greek here even emphasizes that he's not using the same wind or spirit that would be for the Holy Spirit. He says they're fruitless trees. A tree ought to be be giving its fruit, but in late autumn, he says it is twice dead, uprooted. We as Christians, and all men actually, all men experience the first death. We as Christians are caught up in the clouds and we are, our souls are with Christ, but our bodies remain in the ground. We look forward to that reunion. We will never experience death again. We will receive the reunion of body and soul and everlasting life. But the doomed experience death, connection, and eternal doom, the second death. That's these people. But he's looking for fruit and telling you to look for fruit. The first sign being, he's saying all things point to them. The first one's about air. The the tree is about earth. Look to the sea, wild waves of the sea, casting up foam of their own shame. Isaiah 57 is uh, a similar verse with the waves of the sea, but it talks about the sea throwing up mire and dirt. Here it focuses on the foam. The very wave that should be giving energy to propel the ship is simply uselessly crashing on the shore and producing foam. And that's what you notice is themselves, no fruit. And wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved I believe in this time they understood stars. They took direction from stars, but they didn't quite understand the planets, which would just streak across the sky, giving no direction. What use are they? No fruit. Christ spoke of this in His words in Matthew 7. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Greeks are confusing languages can't stand it too many rules nothing makes sense math math is good (laughs) two plus two equals four always there is a simple equation here folks when you're confused when you're dealing with a brother someone you love look at their fruit and it may very well be that you need to talk with him with mercy and kindness, but use correction or reproof to bring him back on the road. In verse 14, he actually quotes his only quotation of the book from 1 Enoch chapter 9. Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones. Enoch actually says he, which was referring to God, um, Jude takes the liberty here of adding the word Lord with a myriad of angels. 
Jesus says the same thing in Matthew 16, that He is coming with His angels, and He's coming to execute judgment. Judgment for who? Just the ungodly? No. Judgment on all. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus talks about this day in which He will come with all of His angels with Him, and He will sit on this glorious throne, and He will bring all the nations to Himself. And He will take every person from this gathering and He will separate them into two groups. On His right side, He's going to call this group sheep. And these people, He will say, you are blessed by the Father and you come and be prepared to inherit the kingdom of God which has been made for you since the foundation of the world. But to the other group, He's going to come over here and put them on the left side and he's going to call them goats. And he's going to say to them, depart from me, you are cursed. And you need to prepare yourself to enter into the eternal fire, which was also prepared for the devil and his angels and now for you. See, it's not a two-step for Christ. It's a choice of two. It's into the eternal life or to the internal punishment. Not all are condemned, but some are. These folks could be condemned. Spurgeon says, Never let us speak of the doom of the wicked harshly, flippantly, or without holy grief. The loss of heaven and the endurance of hell must always be themes for tears. That's that's the beautiful thing here is that quite possibly it could be the people that you love dearly that you can make a difference in their life. This is an intimate relationship that Jude is talking about. Jude speaks wonderfully to us. And you have an opportunity to present Christ. Remember, you've got an example. It's between John 7... And the crucifixion of Christ, Jude was converted. And there, that is for you to bring to your loved ones the words of life. Because the next few words that we have are terrifying. And as Spurgeon said, we should approach them with tears. He says their practice would be reason to condemn them. Their deeds of ungodliness committed in an ungodly way is reason for condemnation and convict, being convicted. Number two, the truth that they ignore. They speak harsh things that they as ungodly sinners have spoken against God. They're grumblers. In other words, they don't believe. They speak harshly about God. They're malcontents. They find fault, especially against any morality of the law that they can find. And they despise authority rather following their own sinful desires. And they are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism for their own advantage, basically for more sin. Peter says they speak of loud boast of folly. Next week you'll hear about mercy and how we deal with one another for correction and reproof. Uh, Edward says, if damnation be justice, then mercy may choose its own subject. This is a, a passage about 
our binoculars, looking into one another's life and making a difference. That's what Jude has called us in two. He spoke in three. Christ speaks in two. You know, God was not tolerant with sin. He sent His Son in order to overcome that sin. He could not look a blind eye away from what had occurred on earth and of those who He loves and those who He are going to keep until the day of Christ. Christ was not satisfied of our lost estate. He came from, down from His lofty throne to the cross. And when He hung there on that tree at Calvary, what you saw right there was a colossal fight. A contending, as Jude has called us to. Love is not broad-minded. Christ came to shed lust, selfishness, and all our worldly appetites. But He spoke in twos. Whoever is not for me is against me. He who does not gather, scatters. The gate is narrow, the gate is wide that leads to destruction. The pathway is narrow. The pathway is wide that leads to destruction. You have two kingdoms. My kingdom or the kingdom of Satan. You have two masters, me or the devil. Two eternities. Everlasting punishment or everlasting life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you for your word, for your mission to save us, to perish and that we might live. We pray that we would be faithful to you in all things and that we would indeed love one another with a love that is so strong that we would never look a blind eye to one another and that we would faithfully encourage one another and keep one another in the truth of Christ within the authority that which you've given the church and to one another and under you, and that our ways would be pleasing to you and our practices would be honorable and godly in all things. It's in this name we pray. Amen.